0: Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist and former Australian Treasury official. The aim of this show is to help you better understand the big economic issues affecting all our lives. We do this by considering the theory, evidence, and by hearing a wide range of views. I'm delighted that you can join me for this episode. Please check out the show notes for relevant information. Now on to the show. Hello, thanks for tuning into the show. In this episode, I catch up with Andrew Murdoch to talk about the transition to net zero greenhouse gas emissions here in Australia. My occasional co-host Tim Hughes took part in the conversation too. Andrew is the Managing Director of RK Energy, which describes itself as a clean energy power and infrastructure advisory, providing depth of experience to the investment community as it develops and executes clean energy, power generation and infrastructure projects. It's headquartered in Fortitude Valley, Brisbane, not far from my office. As you'll hear, Andrew is generally positive about the transition to net zero, and he has that can-do attitude you'd expect from an engineer, but he's also a realist. He gave us some great insights into the challenges associated with bringing large amounts of renewable energy into the system he made strong arguments for remaining open to a range of options, such as nuclear power, and for persisting with R&D and carbon capture and storage, a so-called clean coal technology. Okay, let's get into it. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Andrew Murdoch. Andrew Murdoch from RK Energy, good to have you back on the program. Thanks, Gene. Good to be here. Excellent. Uh, Tim, thanks for joining us for this conversation too. You're welcome. Good to be here. Excellent. Uh, So, Andrew, you got in touch after the conversation that Tim and I had recently with Sir David Hendry. And one of the things we talked with Sir David about was the transition to net zero. And we talked about what was happening in the UK and what he thought about nuclear energy as a possibility for Australia. And we talked about these small modular reactors so you got in touch with us and you, you've you been on the show before and you've mentioned uh, that you have some thoughts on, you know, renewables, on how we're going with the transition to net zero on nuclear energy. So, yeah, keen to chat with you about that today, if you're happy to do that.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, June. Yes, happy happy to do so. Yes, so David um, raised some interesting points and so I thought it
0: would be good to expand on some of those a little bit. Excellent. So to kick off with Andrew, could you... Tell us, how do you think this transition to net zero is going here in Australia? And then we might chat about how it's going overseas, please.
1: Yeah, look, I think in Australia to date, um, the transition is going going very well. There's a lot of um, excellent projects that are are happening. Um, We've seen a significant increase in the share of renewable energy on the market um, and a corresponding reduction in the intensity of greenhouse gases per megawatt hour generated each of the states have now got some some ambitious renewable energy targets that they are all working towards and uh, you know we're start, see, starting to see statistics like 25% renewables penetration in states like Queensland and higher in other states as well um, 25% 25 wow yeah, 25% for um for
0: financial year 2023 um which is which is fantastic so this is the percentage of the electricity generated in the state that is coming from renewable sources such as solar and hydro, and it includes the rooftop solar as yeah. well as the big solar farms.
1: Yeah, that's correct, yeah. So it's predominantly solar, wind and rooftop power.
0: Gotcha, okay. So we're at 25% or so here, but we've they've got some pretty ambitious targets, haven't they, for where they want to get to.
1: Correct. Yeah. So, for example, Queensland's uh, renewable energy target is fifty percent renewables by twenty thirty. So that's only another another seven years away. Um, And then eighty percent renewable by twenty thirty five. New South Wales is targeting a seventy percent reduction in greenhouse emissions by twenty thirty five from two thousand and five levels. So they they are really quite ambitious targets. And as renewable penetration increases, it gets harder and harder to manage. um, As we have to shift more power from times of high renewable generation such as the middle of the day when all of the solar farms are, are operating or periods of high wind, collecting the surplus power, storing it and shifting it to uh, times when the wind is not blowing, the sun's not shining is, uh, is one of, of two significant challenges. The other significant challenge we have in terms of significantly increasing renewables penetration is in increasing the transmission infrastructure to uh, be able to collect all of the um, energy that's generated in the, in the renewable energy zones or per- areas where the sun is strong and the wind and the wind blows and, and moving that into the load centres in the cities and industrial areas. Okay, so what's the issue at the moment? We don't have the, the lines where they need to be? Yeah, so the lines um, have historically connected the large base load thermal power stations in places like the Bowen Basin and the Hunter Valley, and connected them to um, to the load centres in in the big cities and and uh, and industrial areas. So. Um Because that's where the energy has flown. It has flown. It's flown from the areas where the coal is to where the where the load is. Mm. Now it needs to. Now we need to get the energy from where the wind blows and the sun shines to where the uh, to where the load is. And that's a lot more geographically dispersed. And uh, yes, there have always been transmission lines to a lot of these communities, but those transmission lines have been sized to suit the towns and communities um, in the area, rather than. and, And of course, that load is much much smaller than. the the hundreds and thousands of megawatts that we want to um, be um, transmitting from those areas back into the cities.
0: Right. So what does that mean? We need bigger, more high-capacity lines? I mean, how, how do we think about that? It's, it's more expensive then, is it? There needs to be upgrades, there needs to be new lines? Co- correct, yeah. So, so the renewable energy zones are all about connecting
1: the, the high renewables areas to the, to the load centres. And yes, it, physically that means new lines, higher voltages, higher capacity um, transmission systems into those areas. Right. And what are these renewable energy zones? Do you know roughly where they are? Uh, Yes, so New South Wales has uh, five renewable energy zones. Um, They have Central West Irana, they have have New England, um, Hunter, South West. Queensland released its um, Renewable Energy Zone Roadmap. Um, I won't try and list all of them. That's all right. There are are quite a few. Right. Some of the areas uh, that Queensland are are progressing, North Queensland, area around Biloela, west of Biloela there, where there there is already some some pretty good transmission um, systems, but it's all about connecting... Uh, connecting local farms into the local wind farms and solar farms into the into the existing transmission system, uh, Darling Downs areas around Macarthur wind farm, um, expanding those uh, expanding those zones as well. So. Great.
0: Okay. Right. You mentioned that as you get more renewables into the system, you have these issues of uh, look, like it's going to be harder to go to the next stage. I mean, we're at twenty five percent, so you're saying that it gets more difficult because then You've got more of your power from intermittent sources, from the renewables. You don't have as much uh, from coal or from gas. So is what you're saying, if we got the low-hanging fruit already, so the, the rest of the fruit, they're going to be more difficult to pick? Is there any rule as to when you have problems? I mean, we're at 25% now. I mean, can we, can we get up to fifty percent? Like, what does that entail? Is does that is that when we need the pumped hydro? Do we need pumped hydro to get to fifty percent? How do we think about this? Yeah, sure. So, no, there's not a there's not a
1: hard rule. Um, things just get harder and harder. So, I okay. guess you know, using the low hanging fruit analogy, you need a bigger and bigger ladder as the as the fruit gets higher and higher. Yeah. So, the driver for pumped hydro or any storage is is the volatility in the price. So the difference between the low price and the high price is what provides the economic incentive to put storage in. Um, so the more the more generation that happens at the same time, um, whether it's solar in the middle of the day or wind when the when the wind is blowing, as a ratio against the peak demand, um, the greater that difference is, the greater the economic incentive is for um for the installation of of batteries, um, from a energy supply perspective, from a security of supply perspective, it becomes a probability game. So you've got um, the probability of the sun shining and the po- probability of the wind blowing in various different geographically dispersed regions around around the country on the network, um, and what's the probability of um, any one meteorolo- meteorological event uh, impacting the energy supply to the point where we have to start turning power off? The more storage you have on the system, uh, the more dispatchable generation you have, whether it's coal or gas. The lower that mm. probability is, the more concentrated your your um, your renewable energy resources are meteorologically. If you have all of your solar farms in the one location, for example, and uh, and you get you get rain in that location, well, you're, you're going to get no generation. Whereas if you, if you spread them out all over the country, well, you've got a greater chance of, it, of there being um, of it being sunny in any one spot. And of course, if you um, spread them out in a line that runs east west, then uh, you're extending your generation day as well. So,
0: yeah, yeah.
2: Tim, do you have any questions for Andrew at this stage? It is a sort of like more of an overview, sort of like a question, I guess. Um, when we look at 80% by 2035, without obviously having a crystal ball, I mean, it's there as a target. What are the chances of achieving it? And what does it look like to be able to be 80%? Uh, reliance on renewable energy with those things that you mentioned that um you know there are pitfalls with wind with solar with uh having hydro which i understand really acts as like a bit of a battery so that it can have water pumped to the top during the day while there's available power and then it can uh, access that power in the evening with 80 percent, in your view is that achievable are we on track
1: Yes. So, Grattan did some excellent modelling about a year or so ago. Uh, and what they found that was that 90% was, a, was an achievable target from a market uh, operations perspective. And their modelling was around reliability of supply versus um, time of day. And they found that at 90% renewables penetration, that was about the optimum. Uh, now, the, the final 10% was, was made up by gas. When it comes to the probability of being able to achieve it, yeah, look, with enough pumped hydro and with enough batteries, yes, you can do it, um, and certainly with the gas in the system to deal with those periods where the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow for, for weeks on end, well, you can just just run gas for that 10% of the time, and if you're 90% carbon-free and uh, 10% carbon at, at, at gas intensities of roughly half that of coal... Yeah, you know, that's a pretty good outcome on an average twenty four seven basis. So, uh, in terms of carbon intensity,
0: so this is interesting because, like you mentioned, oh yeah, say so it doesn't, you haven't got the renewables for a for a week or so. Like there could be prolonged periods where you don't have the renewables, so you've got very little from renewable, and therefore, if you're saying, well, the gas is ten percent. But then for those periods of time the gas is going to have to be providing 50 60 or 70%, isn't it? So you might need to, you, you need more gas capacity than you would in the current configuration. Is that is that one way of thinking about? it? Is Co- that correct. right? Correct. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, and and, and your, your gas becomes more of a standby um, mm. generator and um, so in that scenario where you have very low levels of renewable Generation for a for a long period of time, and all of your batteries are flat, and all of your mm. pumped hydro dams are are empty. That's when the gas has to has to kick in, and that raises a whole heap of questions around security of gas supply as well. Yeah, that, um, when you are only providing gas for a, a short period of time, where do you store it? Um, and and yes, pipelines have have line pack capability, um, but that has to be commercial for the pipeline operator and and for the the provider of the gas in the first place as yeah. well. So.
0: Yeah, what's that capability,
1: line? Uh, line pack. So line pack is um, gas that is stored in in a gas pipeline, in a transmission pipeline. So we have transmission pipelines that crisscross the country, taking gas from gas fields into the into mm. um, industrial and, and, and city centres. Um, the pipes are typically somewhere between 300 and 600 millimetres in diameter and they're pressurised. The more, the greater the pressure that uh, that you run the pipelines in, the more gas you can store in there. So it kind of acts as a big gas bottle and a transmission pipeline at the same time. And so that that stored gas is what we call line pack.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was going
2: to ask actually because one of the other things with this, um, with different sources of energy, how does the transition look? So for instance, like just to be able to switch from from one source to another source to another source to then put gas in or hydro or whatever it's going to be. Undoubtedly, we're charting, you know, well, we're getting into uncharted waters a little bit because this is the intention to try and make that work. How big a problem is that likely to be, that flexibility that will be needed?
1: Well, yeah, so th- this is the beauty of the market. So um, the market operation is such that the generators will each bid in the different technologies that they have at different price points depending upon... What their bidding strategy is typically, um, you'll bid in such that you you bid in to generate whenever the the spot price is greater than your short run marginal cost of operation your cash costs. So then you're, you're then generating a positive cash flow. The market and the transmission system doesn't really care where. The electrons are coming from. If they see, as soon as there is energy flowing through the system, it just flows through the system. And um, the Australian energy market operator, AEMO, uh, they run a dispatch engine where they collect bids from from all of the generators around the country. And every five minutes, it will, it will issue dispatch instructions to each of the generators to either output more power or output less power or maintain the same level depending upon what price they've bid into the system and um, and what level of generation they're physically able to provide at that point in time.
0: Okay. So, Andrew, in terms of how we compare with other countries, I remember maybe it was when we were chatting last time, but there are some countries that seem to have high uh, renewable penetration, but it's it's the countries with geothermal. Is that correct? Well, it, it depends upon
1: what natural resources you happen to have. Yeah. So, if you're New Zealand or Iceland, and you happen to have some excellent geothermal resources, then then great tap in tap into the side of the volcano that you happen to have, <laughs> and and, and uh, grab some of that heat and turn it into power. So yeah, um, yeah, so that that works very well. Um, if you happen to have a lot of hydro resources, you know, if you're a Nordic country, for example, or or, or again New Zealand um, or, or Tasmania, then then you know, you, you, if you're blessed with that rainfall and you can harvest it, then um, then then you have that option. Mainland Australia is a little bit more difficult. We don't we don't have the rainfall to support massive hydro schemes, other than Snowy Hydro in Tasmania. Um, so so we we are limited to to solar and wind for the bulk of our um the bulk of our renewable. Geothermal is an option, but our geothermal resources are very deep and uh, not not high grade, so quite expensive to to get that heat to the surface and turn it
0: into power. Mm. So can I ask a question about hydro versus pumped hydro? Because you you mentioned Norway, so does Norway have a lot of hydro? Is it able to generate a consistent or quite a regular amount of energy from their hydro resources? They don't have pumped hydro. They've got actual. They've got enough rainfall, or they're capturing it. They've they've set up these hydroelectric dams in a way that it'd be good to have some understanding of that. Just. Is there a difference between normal hydro and pumped hydro? Yeah, How does that work?
1: Yeah, so so the key difference between normal hydro and, and pumped hydro is for, for normal hydro, the, the rain or snow falls onto the top of a hill yeah. or a plateau somewhere, collects somewhere into a, a, a reservoir or a, or some other collection system up high in the mountains. Mm. Then you run it through a, a set of penstocks into a turbine that, that might be several hundred metres, maybe maybe further underground, um, and then it will discharge into the river system mm. several hundred meters below where it's collected, as opposed to pumped hydro, where you are taking water from a lower reservoir using cheap power to pump it back up the hill, yeah. um, and then storing it at the top of the hill, and then um, and then running it back down again during periods when when prices are higher. Now you can do both in the same scheme, and there are there are several examples of um of both. So so you might collect the your snow melt or your your rain up in the up in the hills, run it through the run it through the turbine once, and then go. Well, you know what? I wouldn't mind doing that a second time, mm. um, and uh, pump it back up the top of the hill again. And that that is particularly useful for areas where. There's seasonal variations in the amount of water that comes through the system. Snow melt, for example. Yeah. So um, mm. you know, during the during the autumn, you might you might pump more water up the top of the hill and use it in pumped hydro mode. during the spring, you might just use it as a one through system. So
2: and so that that would be something where, for instance, because one of the issues it seems with solar or um, wind, but particularly with solar here, is that we can't store. We can generate more than we can store. Uh, is that right? Yeah, correct.
1: Um, at, at present, yes, the generation, the PV generation capacity is significantly higher than our ability to store it at so present. The, yeah.
2: So the pumped hydro is a good solution to use that excess energy in a way of pumping the water back up um, so that effectively having it as an extra battery, like the, the hydro itself serves as a battery so you can then use that power in the evening?
0: Yeah. Well, it's a solution. The question is, is it a good solution relative to other solutions we have for for transitioning to net zero right right because it's there's a cost to it isn't there I mean presumably like building these big these pumped hydro dams that's I don't know have billions of dollars isn't it I mean it's a huge amount of money that we have to spend and C- correct correct yeah, yeah.
1: The, they, these are big projects they're big civil works projects billions of dollars um many years lots of geothermal risk lots of opportunity uh, sorry lots of geotechnical risk I beg your pardon uh, lots of opportunities for the projects to not go as well as perhaps we, we first planned. Um, now,
0: geotechnical risk, you mean the risk of earthquakes?
1: No, I mean the risk of rock being harder than you expect oh, it to be. gotcha. Okay. I, That's I, mean, good. <laughs> I mean, and I mean the risk of tunnel boring machines getting stuck for months um, underground, um, those kind of those kinds of exercises. So, so it, it, it really impacts in terms of cost and schedule risk. And, and you know, it's, it is difficult to it is difficult to predict what rocks underground will cost yeah. to dig. And many a construction company uh, has gone to the wall because of uh, not
0: not understanding geotechnical risk. Right. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Because um, we've got to build two new pumped hydro here in, in Queensland and that's because, yeah, we need the storage because we're going to be relying a lot on solar and wind. We don't have geothermal as they do in uh was it Iceland or somewhere like that yeah or, Iceland
1: yeah. and New Zealand Iceland and New Zealand and to a lesser extent uh, PNG so
0: and geothermal will be good because it, is it 24/7 effectively Co- correct yeah so the volcano doesn't sleep right yeah. so, Or the hot <laughs> ground
1: it doesn't sleep so um, <laughs> yeah, yeah so exactly. it's, it's a heat source that is there 24/7 and yeah, it's a good yeah. base load reserve so, yeah.
0: yeah i guess what we're interested in is uh, and because there's an upcoming event at the uh, it's at the Tivoli, I think, isn't it, Tim? I think so, yeah. Yeah, around the corner from where we are here in uh, in, in Fortitude Valley or, or Newstead. And it's about does Australia need nuclear power because we're discovering that the greater penetration of renewables relying more on renewables, well, we need to upgrade the grid, we need to upgrade transmission lines, and there are all sorts of uh, you know huge estimates of what that could cost. I've seen a trillion dollars or so, it seems that there's a, there's an argument about, oh, what is really the cheapest cost of electricity once you take into account all, the, all of these network costs? There was a controversy about the CSIRO uh, levelized cost estimates. Could nuclear be part of the the solution, given that there are all of these costs with renewables and we're not really sure whether it will well, I mean, maybe maybe we are sure it will work. This is what I want I'm interested in your view on. To what extent should we be looking at nuclear as a potential backup or a plan B if this this current plan doesn't work out? Yeah, well, we
1: certainly should be considering nuclear as one of the options. The the engineer in me likes to consider things with a, a skeptical and inquiring mind. So what are all of the options What are the ones that will work? What are the ones that won't work? What will they cost? What are the probability that we will achieve the outcomes that we're trying to achieve? So in the context of assessing any type of technology, we should be looking at what is it going to cost? What are the consequences? How does it impact our society? How does it impact our landscape? My personal view is that that advanced small modular reactors have a role to play particularly um, when we're getting into the very deep base load, so the power that has to run 24-7 at very high levels of reliability, that's going to be very difficult and expensive to do with um, intermittent uh, renewables. And it it is possible to do it with intermittent renewables. Um, It's possible to do it with intermittent renewables and storage and gas topping. But another arrow in the quiver of decarbonisation tools that we could use is, is small modular reactors
0: okay we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor
2: if you need to crunch the numbers then get in touch with adept economics we offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice we can help you with funding submissions cost benefit analysis studies and economic modeling of all sorts our head office is in brisbane australia but we work all over the world you can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. It is a, a really interesting area because it's changing very quickly. I was going to ask, one of the big costs that um, gets talked about is the infrastructure. Uh, and I know before we started recording, uh, I was mentioned about Mount for instance, and the cost of running Uh, the copper string connection, which I'll ask you to just talk about in a sec. But as a general thing, the infrastructure, as we currently look at it, is extremely expensive. With the technology changing as quickly as it appears to be, um, is it possible that, obviously, decisions have to be made now and action has to be done now. Is it possible that some of this uh, very expensive infrastructure may become redundant in the not-too-distant future, uh, with the possibility of... For instance, uh, we haven't uh, also leading into the conversation about SMRs, small modular reactors, which I imagine would require less of this infrastructure if that was to be the case, that they would be rolled out um, in more locations. So we don't need to move energy over large distances. So I, I guess the overriding question would be, you know, like with this changing technology, battery storage is obviously a big part of this. Um, where it may not be necessary to put all this expensive infrastructure in place now, how does that pan out? Um, obviously, we have to go with what's available, but current technology. How do we stop ourselves wasting money on uh, infrastructure that becomes unnecessary fairly soon? Sure, good good question. And I guess you, there's a whole heap of crystal balling that there needs is, to be yeah. done in terms <laughs> so of. So I realise it's an impossible <laughs> yeah, yeah, question, and it's yeah, very much. So- uh, a sort of moot point because this yeah. is clearly, I mean, it's all expensive, but yeah. there's a lot of money involved in this. Yeah. And, and it's, um, you know, it's taxpayers money getting invested in these yeah. systems. And yeah. of course it's contentious. And yeah, of course we have to go with what we know. We can't put things onto what we think is going to happen, but it appears that it's moving in a direction quickly enough that we might be able to, I don't know, it might be prudent to hold off on some of these, um, bigger things. So, sorry, uh, I'll put about five different questions in there for you Andrew, but um, so the copper string connection, if we can go with that, so the current way of moving power over long distances is currently quite expensive, yeah. Great. yeah, so I
1: guess i'll I'll talk specifically about copper string because it's an interesting project, um and and it probably in describing it, it uh, it it probably addresses many of your questions. So firstly, the fundamental reason that you would want to connect, Mount Isa to the national electricity market. So currently Mount Isa, Cloncurry, and all of the mines that operate off that system operate on, a, on an isolated grid. So there's right. a small power station, Diamantina power station, that operates in Mount Isa. It burns gas, it's connected to the Carpentaria gas pipeline and it, it provides power to those to the to the mines in those in that area. The original value proposition, and this value proposition still holds true today in connecting Mount Isa to the national electricity market, is to reduce the cost of minerals processing in Mount Isa. So if you reduce the cost of power, the bulk of the power consumption in the Mount Isa grid is used to make big rocks into small rocks so that copper and other minerals can be be leached out of it. So if you reduce the cost of power, all of a sudden you can chase lower and lower grades of ore, your mine lives get extended, Mm -hmm. um, and economic output from the Northwest Minerals province increases. So that's the value proposition. If you connect Mount Isa to the National Electricity uh, Grid, those existing power stations at Mount Isa, they still exist, um, and they can still generate power, and, and instead of just selling it to customers on the Mount Isa grid, they can suddenly sell that power to people elsewhere on the grid, they can sell it to you and me here in Brisbane or people in Sydney or, or anyone else who's connected to the national electricity market. So it opens up the number of, uh, of customers to them. You also end up in a situation where you have a high voltage electricity network connection going a long way west into a very high solar flux region. So you can still be making a lot of solar power in Mount Isa at 6 p.m., when the sun's gone down here in Brisbane and we can take advantage of some of that uh, geographical diversity in the in the network by building that extension. You're also crossing over the Great Divide. Um, so going from Townsville to Mount Isa, you're crossing, you're going very close to Huwenden and there's excellent wind resource and, of course, a lot of really, really sunny paddocks along the, ro- the road as well. You're going past Julia Creek and all the vanadium deposits in there. There's multi-pronged economic output that comes out of out of this particular investment.
0: So vanadium is one of those critical minerals, is it? So this is what you're suggesting that we it might become economic to – are we mining it already? I mean, and then would we process it there? What, what would be the advantage of – Yeah, so there's a, there's a number of
1: vanadium projects in the Julia Creek area okay. um, yeah. that, that, are, that are going ahead. And they, they will probably – those projects will probably proceed with or without copper string. Okay. Um, it's just if they can get – Lower cost power, then mm. then that helps the project. Gotcha. So, those projects are going to ship the ore. They'll, they'll either process it on site or ship it to um, to Townsville, where it will be um, where it'll be processed and then um, either exported as vanadium. Uh, they also have some other other products that come with it as well. I think one of them has a um, an oil shale product as well. So there's a, a petroleum product that comes out as well from those right. projects. So, yeah.
0: Okay, good one. Sorry, I interrupted you. If I was just interested in vanadium. Yeah, and then I guess to to come back to the the
1: redundancy risk point. So for a project like copper string, the redundancy risk is I guess offset by the fact that um, minerals production in the northwest um, will will continue you know, for some time. Won't won't continue indefinitely. At some point, we'll, we'll run out of minerals there to mine. And irrespective of that, is that the solar farms that are being built out there and the wind farms that are being built out there. Once they're built, they will continue to generate Mm. at very low cost forever Um, whenever, you know, subject to upgrades and stuff like that. You know, you might need to replace your solar panels and and upgrade to the next level of technology, et cetera. But once you've you've developed them, uh, why would you ever turn them off if you've got this zero marginal cost power coming onto the system? So I'm not so much worried about redundancy. Mm. In the context of... Putting new technologies such as SMR or clean coal or any other technology into the grid. Well, yeah, okay, they've, they've got to stand up on their own two feet. Every every project has to be economically viable. And again, if I owned a wind farm or a solar farm that lived lived out on the end of a, a long a long spur or in a renewable energy zone, I wouldn't be turning it off to make space for a, a competitor. I would I would yeah. just keep keep generating. So. Mm.
0: On the clean coal, you mentioned clean coal. That's not really a thing anymore, is it? Because they figured out it was not economic. Is that right? The whole carbon capture and storage? Uh, Not so much figured out that it was
1: uneconomic. I think we just gave up on it. Um, (laughs) Right. uh, Which which is a shame. Um, If you look to Norway and the US and Canada, they are continuing with carbon capture and storage. There are some carbon capture and storage um, projects happening in in Australia. Um, Santos are doing a um, a project uh, on the the Mooney fields, um, right? And then of course, there's Chevron doing the Gorgon project, and all of the under the safeguard mechanism, any new mm-hmm. LNG projects have to be 100 um, uh, percent carbon neutral. So that sort of enhances the driver to collect reservoir CO2 and reinject it back into into underground aquifers. So,
0: so that's that's just the CO2 or the greenhouse gas emissions associated with the actual extraction, is it? Because it's not in terms of, not the greenhouse gas emissions associated with the burning in some other countries, is it? Co- correct, Yeah. Right, so just okay. the scope one emissions. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. so
1: for, for reservoirs such as a typical Northwest Shelf reservoir yeah. where there is, there is is CO2 and methane mm. in the reservoir, yeah. instead of venting the CO2 and, and selling the methane, they will now be required to deal with the, the CO2 um, gotcha. for new projects connected to LNG facilities yeah. under the safeguard mechanism.
2: So their own process becomes neutral as such? Correct. Okay.
1: So back to clean coal, um, yeah, my personal view is that in Queensland in particular, uh, we're doing ourselves a disservice by not pursuing clean coal. Mm. Um, now, that's not to say that it's going to be the answer, but again, it could be one of several solutions or one of uh, several contributors to lower, lower carbon power in australia right
2: just on that note so for instance to get to 80 percent by 2035 so if clean coal um was an achievement that could be done that would be part of the 80 percent not part of the 20 percent remaining (laughs) Well, it depends
1: upon how you define
2: renewable. Okay, so yeah, okay. Yeah,
1: so, so, so you, actually,
2: sorry. Uh, yeah. th- so that's the distinction: is it's renewable, not necessarily carbon yeah, neutral. Yeah, but I,
0: okay. I guess yeah, you could say it's renewable equivalent.
2: <laughs> well, no, it's a fair point. I mean, like for instance, i mean, as a consumer. Like you know, I yeah. I, I I love the direction this this is going, and and it's quick, and it, it stalled for a long time. It's not too long ago, uh, Tony Abbott and Joe Hockey were making it making a joke out of renewable energy. So, the acceleration and the take up has been incredibly fast, uh, which is really exciting to see. And so, the intention here is really good from the consumers through to the market through to uh, government now, which is great. And of course, like the conversation like this really is like, well, how well can it be done? Is it realistic? And, you know, what are the best choices because it's moving so fast? Mm. Um, So, clean coal, yeah, I mean, like anything that gets extracted from the earth is still viable in my view if it can be done in a good way for the environment like you know it's a big conversation but it's basically can we do things ethically sustainably um renewable etc that's that's great but at these figures at these um uh, these amounts going towards 80 percent and of course at some point 100 i mean that would be the ultimate target i'm sure well, i
0: think that's i think in australia that it would be too difficult because of the intermittency and just, you need some gas still, don't you? I mean, no one's talking about 100% renewable at the moment in Australia, are they? I can be the first. You can be the first. <laughs> I'm just wondering whether it'd even be feasible. I, I honestly don't know. I mean,
2: I, I guess from that, all I mean is like, you know, a new technique, because of the emphasis and the money and the um, the brains and the, the work going behind this now, obviously this technology is moving very quickly. So ultimately, yeah, I mean, like we could end up with very clean energy fusion could be at some point in the future. I mean, like this is like decades away, uh, who knows what may happen, but the, the direction we're heading in is a positive one. And yeah, we have to do what we can uh, w- with what we have currently. Can we go back to the SMRs a little bit? Yeah, because this yeah, is yeah. something, this is something that was new to me with that conversation we had with um, Sir David Hendry, looking into it a little bit, like everything else, it's a little contentious. It does appear to be a cleaner option, um, certainly than the traditional nuclear reactors, um, but it's not without risk and it's not without um, some waste. Uh, what are your views on SMRs, Andrew?
1: Yeah, so I, I think they're a good option that we should consider for that very deep base load generation, that role that is currently provided by coal in, in mainland Australia. We need to address safety, and we need to to address waste because they are obviously weaknesses in in the SMR option. So I'm I'm going to make some comments. Um, these comments are based on the the GE Hitachi BWRX reactor, which is currently being uh, designed for a project in Canada. Um, so BWR is boiling water reactor. Um, it's a it's a reactor that um, consumes uranium two three five, splits those into into um, through a fusion reaction. The core is surrounded by water. That water boils. The, the water is then dried and then goes through a steam turbine to generate power. Sorry, you mean a fission reaction? Fission
2: didn't?
0: reactor, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, Gotcha. I might have misheard. Right. Anyway, <laughs> keep going. Yeah. I mean, to be
2: fair, they're so close. I, I had to really work that one out and, yeah. And, yeah. and lock it in. So fusion is the one that's... Talked about often as uh, a bit of a, an Eldorado of energy production, yeah. uh, but we're not there yet and it could be some time away, but fission is what we currently have, yeah. Yeah, fission
1: is what we currently have, yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's splitting atoms, fusion is squishing them together. Yeah. <laughs> um, the power output is moderated in the in the fission reactors by a um, boron set of boron carbide plates that move up and down within the uranium to regulate the absorption of neutrons um, and that uh, dictates the rate of the, of the nuclear reaction and the generation of heat. So these boron, boron carbide plates in a modern reactor is when they're fully inserted, they will will slow the reaction right down and, and let it come to an end. So in a modern reactor, they're held up by a set of, ma- uh, of electromagnets should power fail to the reactor, if if something happens, um, then that electromagnet obviously loses power. The boron plates will drop under gravity into the off position, and then the, the reaction will come come to an end. Older reactors don't necessarily have that fail-safe mm. mechanism. There might have been some mechanical linkage. They might have had to push them up rather than rather than let them drop down, etc. So you have this uh, this um, safety system where if the power goes up, it, it Moves to a uh, a safe position. One of the improvements that came out of Fukushima was to introduce um, reduce the energy density in the reactors so that they could cool naturally using convective currents. Mm. Um, so the 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 GE material states that the the BWRX will cool naturally for up to seven days without any operator intervention, without any external power. So um, when we when we start to look at Chernobyl, um, and that was an issue with the positioning of the the control rods, um, and Fukushima, where the the circulating pumps um, stopped working. Um, those two failure modes have been addressed in in these new newer reactors. The other comment is that they are lower temperature, lower pressure. Um, so the GE Hitachi machine runs at two hundred eighty five degrees C and around seven and a half megapascal. Which compared to a coal boiler is, is relatively relatively low temperature and low pressure. So, right, if we were, if I was specking up a new coal fired power station today, it would be 600 degrees and 30 mpa, so significantly hotter, significantly higher pressure, so pushing the boundaries of of modern material science. Whereas the the BWRX um, has a, a a lot more achievable, uh, I guess, a more comfortable. Um, Pressures and temperatures that give you a wider range of materials that you can select from, and and will last a lot longer with respect to creep life and fatigue life.
0: Right, so. and one of the things I think I remember about these SMRs, I don't know if we chatted about it last time or if uh, it was when I was chatting with Ben and Scott on on the show. Can you just put these where we've got existing coal fired power stations? You can replace the 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 coal fired power um, what is it the the generator or whatever it is uh, with the uh, with the actual SMR?
1: Yeah, look, so in my view, that's a good location for them mm. because you already have the transmission infrastructure and you already have yeah. the water. So an SMR is going to use about the same amount of water as an equivalent coal-fired power station, maybe a little bit more because that because those temperatures and pressures are a little bit lower, so the yeah. thermal efficiency is, is not quite as high. So it might use a little bit more water. And there's no reason why we can't put some hybrid cooling in there as well to to reduce that water consumption. So those, those issues are all are all solvable. What's well, yeah, this hybrid cooling? So the traditional way of cooling steam turbines is using evaporative coolers. So they're the big um, yeah. uh, hyperbolic cooling towers that that one yes. associates with, yes. uh, with. Yeah. Right. With uh, nuclear power stations, actually nothing to do with the nuclear part. It's everything to do with the steam turbine part. yeah, um, right. so and that basically evaporates water to um to take the heat out of the condenser. A dry cooling tower is more like a radiator in your car where you're just mm. using the air circulating through the radiator to cool it. A wet cooling tower will an evaporative cooling tower will will be more efficient because it drops the temperature to the dew point temperature rather than the dry bulb temperature which gives, gives you a couple of percent uh, of efficiency in your steam turbine, which is very valuable. And then if you do a hybrid, you um, the reason you would do a hybrid is essentially to save a bit of water, drop the high temperature heat out using the radiator, and then still achieve those lower temperatures by, by taking maybe the last 10 20% of heat out using evaporative cooling.
0: Right, okay,
1: gotcha.
2: So there's still some radioactive waste from SMRs, uh, is that right? So Correct. It's, it's reduced... Um, so compared to the energy it can generate, it's less than a large um, nuclear station, uh, nuclear power station. Um, but there is still some waste percentage-wise, I guess, uh, compared to the power generated. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So radioactive waste. I mean. Co- of course. Correct. Yeah.
1: yeah. So so yes, it does generate high-level radioactive waste, and the most significant part of that is the spent fuel rods. Now the spent fuel rods can be reprocessed. Um, yeah, it's I can't remember the ratio now. It's something in the order of around ninety-five percent of the energy remains in in the uranium fuel rods after they're removed from the reactor. So that reprocessing, which is essentially is is refining the amount of U two three five and removing some of the U two three eight. And once it's reprocessed, it yeah can go straight back in the reactor and run for another. So of is years. this
2: transuranic waste? Is that right? Because this is um, David Hendry mentioned about. He he referred to transuranic waste, which can then be um, reused by the uh, SMR. I'm I'm just repeating this. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, this is uh, we, we we went over this briefly with. Um, Sir David, so it would be something we could put to him directly, but uh, that was my understanding that uh, there was a certain amount of the waste that can then be um, uh, used as fuel um, by the the SMR. Yeah, Yeah, correct, correct.
1: Yeah, Yeah. the bulk the bulk of it can be reprocessed and, and reused. Now, that said, even if you don't, and a lot of countries don't reprocess their waste because it's quite expensive compared to to producing new fuel rods from raw, raw uranium, even if you don't, you're still only generating a very small amount of waste.
2: But radioactive waste is pretty serious stuff for a long period of time. So the disposal of that, I guess, must be quite expensive, let alone the dangers of handling and processing that.
0: We've got a lot of places you could bury it in in Australia, though, right? Outback, outback Queensland, South Australia.
2: You know, place, plenty yeah? of places. Oh, mate. <laughs> so, um, but but the thing is, obviously, with the aim for clean energy, it's an uncomfortable addition to the suite of energy provision uh, sources that we may be looking at. Um, however, I mean, it was interesting because I didn't know of it until just recently with the interview with uh, David Hendry. He's a climate econometrician, um, so very keen on having you know uh, a clean, ethical uh, source, and he was uh, a supporter of this. So it's certainly interesting, and um, you know, it, it certainly is something that needs to be considered because obviously the alternatives, everything's got to pay off at some point.
1: Yeah, and, and look, we shouldn't we shouldn't be too glib about the waste issue. It is a serious yeah, it's a serious issue, and you know, one of the one of the cons on the pro con balance of of any technology uh, my personal view is that if we do go down an SMR path that we should also be committing to reprocessing yeah so look I think the this conversation sort of highlights how complex energy is yeah and, and that in any technology choice we make there are there are trade-offs that we have to make if we look at things like land impacts okay well in nuclear yes you've got to you have to store the waste somewhere so that's going to have an impact on land and yes we've got some good ge- geological um characteristics about Australia and lots of space. If I look at coal, for example, well you've got to dig holes in the ground and that has an impact on the land. If you want to burn gas, you've got to go and you've got to go and sink gas wells and that has mm-hmm. an impact on the land. If you want wind, then you're going to have to go and uh, go and find some windy hills that are, you know, probably covered in some nice gum trees, and 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 put up some wind turbines. If you want to put up solar farms, you're going to have to you know, clear some bush or take some agricultural land or grazing land and and turn that into solar cells. So there are no free
2: lunches. So and if you, you want to you, store the energy, you've got to build the batteries. Uh, build the batteries,
1: or dam the damn the valleys, or, or or whatnot. All of these things there is a payoff. There's a bill to be paid one way or the other. Yeah. So um, the best we can do is. Uh, as a community, is to is to assess all options, yeah, yeah. on a level playing field basis, with a with a, a sceptical and inquiring eye. Yeah. What is the best engineering? What's the best economics? What's the best ecological science? Can we afford it? Will it produce the ecological, social, power reliability needs that that we want?
0: Or is it the best compromise of all of those? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Based on this conversation, it sounds like we should be considering some more options. Maybe we've uh, tied our hands uh, because we're not talking about potential role of nuclear. We're not talking about potential role of clean coal or there's less focus on that than there once was. This has been amazing. Again, really good. Good for us because this is such a complex area. And I mean, I've got my own thoughts, but I, I don't know enough about the engineering to be able to speak authoritatively on it. No, look, it's been a good discussion. Um, yes, thank you uh, thank you for the opportunity. Oh, it's a pleasure, Andrew. Always, uh, always happy to, to chat and, uh, yeah, it's good to get your insights on uh, the transition to net zero. So thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks. Righto. Thanks for listening to this episode of Economics Explored. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email via contact at economicsexplore.com or a voicemail via SpeakPipe. You can find the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could tell anyone you think would be interested about it. Word of mouth is one of the main ways that people learn about the show. Finally, if your podcasting app lets you, then please write a review and leave a rating. Thanks for listening. I hope you can join me again next week. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more content like this, or to begin your own
2: podcasting journey, head on over to obsidian-productions.com.